Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. Hey, it's Corin here. Unfortunately, at the end of this episode with Kevin, the audio got so bad we had to cut it short. <laughs> at the same time, I couldn't re-record with Kev because he's currently, as we're talking, on a plane back to Chiang Mai. What he was talking about in this episode that we recorded here in Austin at my office is his love of Chiang Mai and how it's a great place to base yourself. Now, I'll link in the show notes to another podcast episode where both Kevin and I talk all about Chiang Mai, Thailand. So if you're interested in learning more about Chiang Mai, Thailand, don't worry, we'll link to that. So go to truthaboutexits.com, find the episode with Kevin, and we'll link over to that. Otherwise, there's a little bit at the end we left in that is a little bit rough to listen to, so apologies for that. Um, we will double-check our audio in future episodes. Uh, we just didn't have time to redo this one, and I wanted to get it out to you ASAP. Okay, enjoy this episode with Kev. And we're live. So today on Truth About Exits, I have my good friend, Kevin Graham, all the way from Chiang Mai, Thailand. We're both here in Austin, enjoying a beer while we record this. Hey, Kev, thanks for jumping on the show. Karan, it's great to be here. I know that we've been like speaking for quite a while about me actually coming on the podcast, and it's great to actually do this in person with a couple beers and just, you know, have a bit of fun with it. See what happens. I love it. So... When I met Kev, we were both in Chiang Mai, Thailand. This was quite a few years ago. Was it four or five years ago, maybe? Yeah, probably 2014, 2015, somewhere around then. Yeah. And at the time, you were building niche sites, mostly Amazon affiliate sites, right? Yeah. So if I was ever exp explaining what I do to a taxi driver back then or anyone who knew nothing about the space, I would describe them as like small product review websites that were focused on a specific type of product. So for example, just taking some inspiration from all the stuff that I bought yesterday to be ready for this show, we could be talking about like specifically podcasting equipment and just have a site targeted exclusively on that. So podcasting microphones, these boom arms, the pop filter that I have sitting in front of me here, like all of that gear is the sort of stuff that would be, you know, considered around one small niche and each site would have its own unique niche. Gotcha. So we jumped in a little bit early there, but uh, one thing you might want to listen to this episode for is Kev's gone from the build and sell side to the buy side, and now he's in a pause period. So we're actually going to talk about all three of those things, but we'll dig into that a little bit more. So basically, when we met, you were living the dream. You had some cash flowing websites that you built from scratch. So the ROI was amazing. You managed to sell a couple of these for quite a, a decent sum. Then you got into hosting. So how did you go from building and selling niche sites to the hosting company? Yeah, so with the hosting company, it was actually when I started building that, it was a specific 
type of hosting company designed for people doing SEO or search engine optimization. Basically, people working in that space needed a lot of separate hosting accounts with unique IP addresses for each account and they would use those to build small blogs to send links to the sites they're trying to rank. Having managed probably two to 300 sites of that type on my own, I had Excel spreadsheets out the wazoo trying to manage that. And there would be like daily tasks in that and checking that all the sites were still working, putting the sites back up if like one of the small hosts that you bought from had just disappeared overnight. And so that was a lot of hassle. And I thought to myself, well, there has to be a better way. And so what I did was basically start a hosting company that looked like a bunch of small hosting companies to replicate what I was buying on the market, combined it all into a single dashboard, a single monthly bill for our customers, and made the whole process a lot easier. So that's how I got started in the hosting industry. And so I started that service, which was initially called Bulk Buy Hosting, in December 2015, basically scratching my own itch of a problem that I had and trying to solve that problem. Okay, cool. So yeah, like most entrepreneurs, you see a problem and you just can't have it not fixed. So you go fix it. This became pretty quickly a very profitable, sizable business in its own right. So what was the catalyst of you saying, okay, I've built this from scratch. Now I want to go buy some hosting companies. Basically, the thing that was leading into that or the impetus for that was... Uh, seeing the SEO hosting space and hosting all these uh, private blog networks for SEOs as kind of still being the similar risk profile that we had with the affiliate business. Now, I was trying to move on from that a little bit more and find a more stable, predictable, long-term revenue source. And so I started looking at the acquisition space. Now, for small hosting companies, so anything under somewhere between 150 and 250,000 per year in revenue they're typically valued at 12 months revenue as like a sales price it's a fairly standard price in the industry which depending on how you run it would ideally provide a 50% ROI so you'd get paid back on your initial purchase price in 2 years and by doing that i could slowly use the profits from the seo hosting to buy these other hosting companies and increase the longevity of the business. Okay, that makes sense. So that was the thesis that you could essentially earn the money back in two years if they were 50% margin. So could you talk through a couple of those acquisitions and just let us know how they actually played out? Yeah, so I basically got started with the acquisition process around this time last year, the start of May last year. After chatting to Richard Jalachandra at DC Austin 2018 and hearing about his plan to build a company that was buying up 101 small Amazon FBA businesses, I thought, hey, I can replicate this exact same thing in the hosting industry. I already have the industry knowledge. Let's go and do some deals. And so over the last 12 months, I've done almost 290K worth of deals. Some of them have gone well, some of them have gone less well. And I've learned a bunch of lessons along that path. Okay, so a couple of things. I forgot to ask you this before, but you mentioned risk. And I think risk is a real driving motivator of most entrepreneurs. We don't often admit this, but this is the reason we do most of what we do, right? Is we're scared of something going to zero or something changing. So going from PBN hosting with bulk buy to going and acquiring 
other hosting companies, did you specifically look for a certain vertical? So were you looking for X type of hosting company that wasn't a PBN hosting company because that would just add to the problem, right? Did you look at verticals or did you just look at what was available in the market, what was in the price range and go from there? Yeah, so... Basically, I was looking at small standard retail hosting companies that offered domain registration, web hosting, and sometimes VPS hosting or dedicated hosting. So shared hosting is the most basic sort of entry-level hosting stuff. If you've ever had like a website with Bluehost or HostGator, you have a small shared part of a bigger server and you pay a small monthly fee for that. So that's shared hosting. Moving up from there, you then have VPS hosting where you have a more dedicated cutout slice of the resources of a server. And then you go all the way up to dedicated hosting where you've got your own physical server sitting in a data center somewhere that is exclusively for your access and your use. And I'm assuming as a complete novice that that means there's greater fees or higher fees to pay if you have a dedicated server right yeah so as you step up through those levels the technical knowledge required increases for the customer as well as the monthly prices tend to increase as you go from shared to vps to dedicated and the margins go the other way so shared hosting has like the best margins vps has still good margins and dedicated servers extremely commodity and the lowest margin of all the categories so did you go for the highest margin first yeah well i mean basically we were chasing shared hosting companies as much as we could some of them also had a vps hosting component in there which was okay and a few of them resold a few dedicated servers at good enough margin that it makes sense to continue to resell them Okay, cool. And let's talk a little bit about funding. So you mentioned RJ from 101 Commerce. Now, (laughs) we know RJ, we've done a deal with RJ and counting, hopefully do many more. So I know RJ pretty well. He loves debt and other people's money to do his deal. I know you're personally funding these deals. So did you use some of the capital from selling the niche sites back in the day? Or were you using the, just the cash flow from the hosting business, the profits from the hosting business to do this? And how much did you allocate for acquisitions? Did you have a set amount that you said, okay, this is our thesis. This is what we're going to do. This is X amount of capital. Yeah. So for the capital component, we basically looked at here's the last like six to 12 months worth of profits that we'd taken as dividends from the bulk buy hosting. And we said, okay, This is the amount that we've got that we could allocate towards acquisitions. In addition, I sort of had the longer term play of basically having enough savings sitting around that I had a long enough runway that we could just continue to use the monthly profits as they grew from the ever-growing size of the entity to then reinvest that back into more acquisitions. So there was... The, the concept, at least, of if these things are throwing off 50% out the bottom, I could basically, there was a potential pathway to being like a company doing 5 million revenue in five years just through doing acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a pretty aggressive growth strategy, but I love that you're using cash that the business was actually kicking off. That's super smart. 
Yeah, so it was kind of this idea of taking the dirty money from PBN hosting and then making it cleaner in the longer term with just you know more and more shared hosting, which would make the business this more reliable, longer term thing with you know ideally a 15, 20 year lifespan on it. Okay, cool. All right, so let's talk through some of the acquisitions and this is truth about exits. So let's talk a little bit about the actual deal terms itself. He's just grabbing his notes. That's hilarious. <laughs> so could you talk through just maybe pick a deal, whether it's the first deal or one of the deals and how that actually played out? So one times annual revenue, how did the deal come about? Yeah. So I'll just use one of our uh, sweetheart deals from the early stage. That one, the guy had posted on an industry forum that he was looking to sell. The business had been around since the year 2000, so a really long history. It was declining at like 10 to 15% year on year. And so we looked at the last 12 months revenue. We then discounted that by the 10 to 15% churn that we'd seen as like the trend. And then made a, an offer based on that. For that deal... Wait. Hang on a minute. Sorry. i got to jump into this. Okay. Right. So there's declining revenue. Most buyers would say, hell no, I'm out. <laughs> and there's also churn to deal with. So churn is customers that aren't renewing. Correct. When the renewal's up. So hosting is either monthly or annual or quarterly, whatever it is. Whatever the payment cycle, there's a set amount of people that won't renew. So that's one metric, but then also declining revenue. So what did you do when you saw that? Did you model out and project forward that same decline and work that into your offer? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we'd looked at that basically. We'd tried to predict what the churn and decline in revenue would be over the next 12 months. Basically, the website was super ugly. It looked like it had been built back in 2000 and hadn't really moved on since then. The customers that were on that brand, highly profitable, but they were using a, a really old website builder. And we saw the potential to come in and basically, because it was such an old company and an old brand, it had a very powerful domain associated with it, as well as the ability for us to turn on new revenue streams with offering more modern things so like offering wordpress hosting to these customers and things like that and so basically our thesis was we could hopefully stop some of that rot of customers saying hey i want to leave i'm going to go build with squarespace or hey i want to leave i'm going to go build a wordpress site and you know stem some of those losses by offering those new services as well as you know maybe trying to grow through building up organic SEO rankings for the new products that we'd start offering. Okay, cool. That makes sense. How did you structure the deal? So that one was like all cash. We had a two or three page APA that we sent. What like we both signed off on it and then wired the cash and had like a set date about two weeks in advance from that that would be the actual handover date. So in that time the seller got all of his uh notes that he could think of out of his head onto paper i ended up with like a 20 something page word document of like all of his just random stream of conscious thoughts about everything that needed to be done with like running the business on a longer term fashion and then yeah on that set day we swapped over the payment processing and you know basically took the digital equivalent of the keys here's your passwords away you go enjoy wait 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 <laughs> Hang on, hang on. So 
two weeks to write down his thoughts. You pay him and then he's off into the sunset. Yeah, I mean, he's still available to us on email if we have any questions and stuff. But yeah, okay. here's the handover. Great, let's go. Okay, so you're a pretty technical, tech-savvy guy. So that's not terrifying to you. Most people would be terrified by that. It's exciting. Or, <laughs> or maybe hold back some cash, at least, to make sure that the seller does actually fulfill on being available to you after the sale. So that's interesting. So you took that approach. Why did you take that approach instead of making a deal structure that was more buyer friendly? I guess like in these sort of deals, so that one was like mid five figures. So like a nothing sort of deal, like sub 100K deal. There's a lot of competition in that space. Now I was one of like three to five people that had contacted the seller and sort of bidding for the, you know, the ability to be the successful person to take it over. On the calls with the seller, I'd built a lot of rapport and had basically afterwards he said, hey, the other people did not have the same ideas and plans of what they want to do with the brand. So I trusted you the most to be the person to continue to run this brand into the future, which was, you know, a great vote of confidence. And yeah, but like, I mean, the reason that you wouldn't use those sort of more buy side friendly terms is because, well, one, it's 50 something K and two, because of that high competition at that space or that sort of level of the market, it wouldn't work if I, or would be less likely to be successful if I said, here's 75% upfront and 25% in 30, 60 days, whatever. Gotcha. Yeah. Building rapport with the seller when you're deal making at any level is really important. And the larger deals we start to work on, the more it actually plays, <laughs> the more personal relationship matters. So that's an interesting strategy. So in the beginning, when you got started, you said you wanted to get to 5 million in revenue in five years. So had you thought through, or was it simply just let's acquire, get to 5 million revenue, and then we're done? And regardless of what happens along the way, what was the actual play there? It was a very simplistic plan. I looked at it and said, hey, if we continue to do acquisitions that threw 50% out the bottom, we would be able to hit that point of five mil rev in five years. And then at that point I would go, okay, what do I do next? Like, I, I'm sure, like, I mean, there would obviously be the ability to sell it if I want to. There'd probably also be the ability to then take two and a half mil and then grow to seven and a half mil the next year and so on and so forth. But five years felt like a good time period to try and just forecast and work towards. Okay. So it's been about a year. So how's it been going? Mixed results. Let's just say mixed results. The projection of profit certainly hasn't played out, which has impacted the longer term return of capital. And like right now, we've sort of hit a pause on acquisitions temporarily while we reevaluate the thesis, try and look and learn some data from the nine acquisitions we've done over the last year, because I was just trigger happy on acquisitions. I was like, let's just buy all the things. And some of those things have been less good than some of the other things. And I really need to now sit down and review all those deals look at which ones have been most successful, which ones haven't, and try and build a more robust rule set around the deals that we will and won't do. Yeah, you say that like it's a bad thing. 
I'm literally working with buyers right now that have committed capital in the low eight figure range that haven't pulled the trigger in two years. And you've done nine nine deals, was it? In a year. Nine deals in a year. So the fact that you're needing to pause for a minute and optimize what you've acquired doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> so maybe there's a an expectation. Well, most entrepreneurs would just want everything today. But I think where you're at is a really good spot actually. You've got you've done some deals, you're looking at the numbers, you're figuring out your criteria, and then going back to the market when it makes sense for you. And like I was explaining to you or we were discussing this last Sunday when we first went to record this and uh, we were, we're all talking about it and I think that's actually part of the process is defining the criteria when we're dealing with buyers we know they're serious buyers if they have a really rigid set of criteria and what I've found is on the advisor side at least you'll see stronger offers when everything not everything you never get 100% but when 80% of the checklist is actually ticked off with this deal then you'll see a much stronger offer from the right type of buyer yeah I mean when you say like entrepreneurs want everything today for me the way that I was going about it I wanted everything yesterday I was very keen to just go out there like every week there would be the weekly email from the broker and I would look at that and go, yep, all right, what's in there that we want to buy and just try and do those deals. I did a few deals on Flipper and one of them has been really good. One of them has been like probably the worst deal that we did. But yeah, it was just very much a focused on doing deals thing rather than a focus on doing the right deals, which like earlier this week, I had a call with a potential seller who I just reached out to and said, hey, are you interested in selling? Sent him a short email. We got on a call. And as we're going through the call, he mentioned that one of his or some of his servers are on a different type of management system, management panel than we've normally used. Now, in the past and based on one of the deals I did, I was like, yeah, sure. Hosting is hosting. Let's just do deals. But you know, based on this new pause phase that I'm in and trying to review the deals and really break down what was successful, what wasn't, and work out that rule set. One of the things has been just stick within a very shallow, not shallow, very narrow, narrow. a very narrow niche of types of hosting. And this falls outside of that. So it's a no deal. It's something that we just can't do. Yeah, and that's where you really get advantages. That's why big companies, we love to deal with strategic acquirers for the most part because they can bring more to the deal than a financial buyer. So what I realized talking to you, because I know very little about the hosting space, but after talking to you a little bit about it, I realized, well, you explained the differences in technology and then there is no scalability. There's no economies of scale to drive costs down. There's very little advantage you can bring to the deal and also we've talked about this at length is it's somewhat of a commoditized product so even acquiring new customers can be a tough thing to do because there's a lot of companies you mentioned bluehost before that spend a lot on the front end because they have good margins but they're also venture backed so they don't need to turn a profit on a customer maybe for a couple years whereas a small business owner we're bootstrapped for the most part or putting capital in and being very conservative, you need a return on capital faster than if you're a venture-backed uh, larger company. 
Yeah. And like one of the other little things that you sort of touched on or that you didn't quite touch on there was it creates all this management hassle. So, and needing to find additional technical talent to handle these different types of servers. So one of the acquisitions we did was a game server hosting company. So people that want to run Minecraft or a bunch of other games. Now, that has a very different management panel and therefore needs a different type of system administrator to actually manage those servers, which, you know, it adds to the complexity of the organization. And basically now what I'm looking at is kind of creating a little bit like the Southwest model of like, we only fly this type of airplane is kind of what we're going to start to do as our deal structure of you know we only buy cpanel hosts we only buy people doing virtualized vps etc so that it's like we only buy hosting companies that have a certain billing system already in place that we know and understand because otherwise it just becomes too messy absolutely cool so i think we've got to that point where it's the realization of what you're looking for now so now that you're at this point where you're actually paused for this moment, at least, in new acquisitions, if you could go back again, what would you do different? All right. Well, apart from not doing at least a couple of the deals that we did, there's obviously those learnings that you get out of that. And so, as I was saying before, like one of the things now is that sort of Southwest Airlines model where we only handle cPanel and Virtualizer and WHMCS billing. If it's outside of that, we're not interested. Like, sure, you could be great margins, but like that really old one from 2000s that we acquired, that had a, its own custom billing platform in there and we had to do a billing platform migration. Now, I was traveling at the time that we did that billing platform migration, but every day I was waking up to a bunch of angry emails in the ticketing system from customers saying, I hate this new billing platform. Why can't we just have the old billing platform? So that's like one of the things is like, you know, knowing a very shallow or sorry, very narrow section of the industry that we want to work with, very particular with the type of softwares that we're working with and sticking within that. So again, the game thing is bad because it's outside of that. One of the other things that I've sort of picked up is that we need to take 100% of the company and all of the needed assets. Now, when I say 100% of the company, I'm not talking about taking on their legal entity. Obviously, we just do asset purchase agreements, but we need to take 100% of their like assets. So that's their brand, all their domains, all of that. One of the deals we did was a spin-out of a hosting company where we took on their shared hosting clients, but they retained the dedicated server clients. Now, as a result, they kept their name and their brand and just said, hey, shared hosting is now over here with one of our brands, which was called Zonode, and a dedicated service and everything else remains with us. Now, that's messy because the old brand remains around and the customers say, well, hey, I sent a check to those guys. Why isn't my service on? You're like, you need to pay us now. Like, it's just messy. One of the other interesting ones that I've sort of written down as part of our types of deals we'll never do is buying from broken relationships. Now, to me, when I went into it and earlier on, I thought this was a great space to get deal flow from. But like two of the deals we've done have been from broken relationships and they've been super messy. Can you dig into that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, sure. So the first deal that we did, and it was only like, 
seven or eight K worth of revenue. So pretty tiny was two friends who started a hosting company and they grew it across like a year or something. And then the two friends sort of had a falling out and said, Hey, we don't want to work with each other anymore. Let's sell. Except it was only one of the guys who presented it as him owning it, which technically he owned the LLC, but the other guy was like heavily involved with the actual operations. And he was the one that was actually doing all the support for this uh, hosting company. So this guy basically had an alarm set every 90 minutes all night to get up and check tickets because he was the only guy doing support. And so once we discovered that, we're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, cool, broken relationship, that kind of sucks. And it was messy doing that deal because of the information that wasn't provided out of that broken relationship. One of the other deals we did, again, a broken relationship, and there was like pieces of information missing that we then needed to try and piece together around like how everything was set up because only part of the information was shared right wow okay yeah that's the d's right when it comes to real estate that's one of the things divorce broken relationships but when it comes to businesses there's so many moving parts that you need all the partners available to tell you exactly what's going on in the business, chances are very high that the other business partner doesn't know 100% what the business partner is doing. I know that's the case with us. I'm sure that's the case with a lot of different businesses. Yeah, and it's just messy. You know, We want to do good deals that are easy and straightforward. And messy deals, while I thought they were great earlier on, no, they just suck. Yeah. So was there any other learnings? I see you've got some notes here. Was there anything else that you would? Yeah, I, probably the other thing is like trying to minimize the disruptions and changes. Now, I'd sort of touched on that before with like changing the billing system. Anytime that you're changing anything, like it's a potential churn risk. And so as we're going through and, you know, we need to swap out payment processes, that creates some churn because there are people that basically have these hosting accounts sitting around for like two, three, five years or whatever on monthly recurring billing, kind of like that gym membership that you signed up for when you got here to Austin. It's been two or three months. I'm sure you've got that gym membership. You're not going anymore. It's the exact same thing happens in hosting. And so like trying to minimize all those sort of disruptions and changes is another way that, you know, we're doing deals differently or aiming to do deals differently going forward to try and make sure that we don't get too much churn out of them and try and therefore get better deals going on. Yeah, awesome. Well, I had Ace Chapman on the show. I know you know Ace as well. And he was saying every time they take over a new business, whether it's online, offline, otherwise, they always expect a dip in earnings. And he actually said it's not because someone's pulling the wool over your eyes necessarily. It's that the business owner themselves don't really know what it takes to run the business. It's intuitive at that point, even if it's only a couple of years old. So I feel like circling back to defining your criteria into a really narrow skill set or narrow target market, you can bring more leverage to the deal. So it might be 50% on paper that you're expecting to 50% margin, but then you can bring another 10%, let's say, and that could cover some of that transition issue and then you're into the upside when you're back on the acquisition train. So what's the next step? So you pause the acquisitions, you're running this portfolio. What's next for the main company is Site Arrow. So what's next for Site Arrow? 
Yeah. So as I sort of mentioned before, like my next thing, so I'm here with you in Austin right now. Next Wednesday, I fly back to Chiang Mai, Thailand. When I get back there, one of my things that I've got on my list to do is actually to sit down, deep dive into all of the nine deals we've done and really try and look for more nuanced learnings than my sort of short list of blatantly obvious things that have gone wrong and try and really refine that rule set around and thesis around the type of acquisitions we want to do. And then we'll just continue to monitor the market. And if something that fits into that narrow little slot of, you know, sweet spot of these are the types of deals we want to do comes up, then we'll review it and maybe proceed. And I think that's one of the advantages of not taking outside capital is that you can wait. And really, I don't know if you've heard this, but I've heard Warren Buffett, and I think Charlie Munger says this, echoes this thought as well. Warren Buffett says that he wishes every investor would get a punch card before they start investing and only have 20 holes on it. Have you heard this? I have not, but like that means I'm halfway through this card already. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and he said because if you only had 20 bullets to pull or 20 punches, you'd think a lot harder about each investment acquisition whatever it is and not saying that you should only do 20 acquisitions but if you thought about only having a limited amount and needing that extra if you only had 20 would you acquire this i think that narrows down the focus before you have the set criteria as well once you have the criteria you could essentially do them all day long but i think you've actually managed to cover some of the downside warren buffett also says famously rule number one in investing is never lose money rule number two is see rule number one so even if a deal that you've acquired is making less than expected you haven't overextended because often if you lay a debt or investors capital into the mix you are overextending yourself in some cases right so that's really interesting so it's funny that you mentioned warren buffett one of the things that i sort of had going into this was that investment thesis around his concept of picking up the cigar that has like two or three puffs left in it buying this thing at a great deal getting the bit of extra that you can out of it and then you know accepting that it's going to move on and so that's where like a lot of these smaller hosting companies that you know gradually declining were looked good and so as i was doing those deals that's what i had in mind like with that first deal the the 2000s era one my mind was that sure he's declining like he had a peak of around 250k he's doing you know 65 last year 55 scheduled like ahead for this next 12 months let's just pick this up it's highly profitable get what we can out of it before it dies maybe try and revive it a little bit like stoke that little flame a little bit like you would on a uh, shisha just get the few little extra puffs out of those coals and you know it's fine but i think now what we're seeing is you know some of those issues that you think maybe this thing's got three puffs in it and it's only got two and it changes everything so yeah it's just changing and evolving and adapting that investment thesis to be more robust and more long term i mean this was my first time on the buy side and it's a bunch of fun going out there and buying all these companies and going yeah i own all these things now this is cool but you know longer term it actually needs to make business sense which is kind of where we're at now is that realization and just shifting and adjusting things so that it is a more 
profitable, long-term, sustainable venture going out and doing these acquisitions. I like it. And I've got a couple more questions and then we'll wrap up here. I think this has been a good overview of your journey to date and we'll definitely get you back on once you're back on the acquisition train or even if you choose to not do acquisitions, I think that would be an interesting conversation too. If I'm back on the sell side, like I'll be on here for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So my next question is you live in Chiang Mai, Thailand quite happily I've spent time there too. It's famously affordable. So why go out and do the acquisitions? Why go through the pain of growing to 5 million revenue? Why? What's the why? So this was the the question that's been leveled at me a little bit over the last few days from my co-founder and partner. I just want to build this really big thing. And I think it's a lot of fun, this whole game of entrepreneurship, especially acquisition entrepreneurship, where, you know, you can buy these things, they become, you know, part of your overall company and you can use those to grow larger and larger very easily. Like going out and through standard marketing, trying to grow 63% in one year, which is what we did through these acquisitions, it's tough. If you just go out and spend a bunch of money and buy all these companies, all of a sudden, like, you know, you move on and you're like a seven-figure company and that's cool. And on that note, yesterday, you came by to pick up some podcasting gear and you came back in and you said, hey, we just we just ticked over seven-figure run rate. So congrats, mate. That's awesome. Cheers. Thank you. It's like kind of for the longest time, like, I mean, I've been online for 20, 25 years or something. And across that time, like even from my earliest days online, I wanted to build like a hosting company and to now finally have a million-dollar hosting company that I control It's cool. It's fun. It's exciting. Awesome. I love that. And I think the truth about it actually is that it doesn't make sense. That's why it makes sense to an entrepreneur (laughs) to go do it. It doesn't make sense to the average person because we're not average people. Yeah. I mean, like, sure, like the stuff on like Chiang Mai, just briefly, like you can live there really cheaply. So I've had friends that have lived for like five to 750 US months. So 500 US to 750 US a month. So it's like nothing. On the other end, you can like ball out there. You can buy or rent, you know, really high-end apartments, go and eat at like some really nice restaurants. Actually, I think one of the top restaurants in Asia is based in Chiang Mai, based on TripAdvisor. So yeah, there's such a wide range there. One of the biggest downsides, of course, is that it's 12 hours opposite to us here in Austin. So Doing deals with the US, and as I was doing a lot of these acquisitions from Chiang Mai, it was you know, kind of difficult getting on calls to actually make that stuff happen. But equally, like the lifestyle is so good there that... Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company and your goals. And my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. 
The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.